Welcome to the Academic CME Podcast. As always, this program is a top quality accredited CE activity. If you would like to receive credit for this or any other Academic CME Podcast, please click the link in the description below or go to academiccme.com forward slash podcast. Greetings. Uh, my name is Dr. Sidney Brayman, and on behalf of Academic CME and with support from InsMed, I welcome you to this podcast entitled Diagnostic Strategies and Long-Term Management of Patients with Non-Tuberculous Mycobacterial Lung Disease, NTM Lung Disease. We will be discussing on this podcast uh, mycobacterial species other than Mycobacterium tuberculosis or Mycobacterium leprae, the cause of leprosy. Uh, these non-tuberculous mycobacteriums, the NTMs, have been referred to also as atypical mycobacteria. The importance of this discussion today cannot be uh, underestimated because, or overestimated, because it is increasing in worldwide disinfection. Likely due to increase of a number of factors. Uh, for one, uh, there are more immunocompromised patients uh, as time goes on with many of the treatments that we're giving. Secondly, uh, increased life expectancy. This is a disease predominantly of the elderly, especially women. And lastly, I think we're just getting much better at making the diagnosis. Uh, diagnostic techniques have improved, and this has certainly increased uh, the, the prevalence of this disease. Well, this is a devastating disease in many patients, often chronic debilitating pulmonary disease results. And as such, we've asked a world-renowned pulmonologist, uh, Dr. Charles Daly, to participate in this discussion today. Uh, the discussion is on best practices in uh, non NTM lung disease treatment. Uh, Dr. Daly is uh, currently a pulmonologist at National Jewish Health in Denver, Colorado. He is a chief of the Division of Mycobacterial and Respiratory Infections and also professor of medicine at University of Colorado. Uh, Dr. Daly, I should mention, has been leading many of the guidelines that we have for NTM lung disease and making it a heck of a lot easier for clinicians uh, to treat uh, with great confidence uh, uh, with this disease and also, I think, with better patient outcomes. Welcome, Dr. Daly. Thank you, Sydney. Let's get to some questions. Uh, first, uh, not everyone is treated not everyone needs to be treated daily with these regimens. Uh, can you give us some idea of who may not need to be treated, who may need, who possibly could be treated with an every the three time a week regimen and those who really absolutely require daily treatment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the idea of whom to treat is one of the most difficult things we face as a clinician, you know, when we get that lab report back that MAC is growing uh, from our patient sputum. And we have to think about, are we going to initiate treatment now? Or are we going to go into watchful waiting? Uh, depending on the patient, they're both, uh, you know, things that we should be considering. Watchful mating, uh, waiting, of course, means you're, you really are, are watching the patient. <laughs> you know, you're not just saying goodbye. You're getting cultures periodically, imaging periodically. Um, and then at some other point, you may decide to initiate treatment. But for those who have cavitary disease, more extensive disease, who more symptoms, maybe poor quality of life, these are ones that we're thinking about treating now and not waiting to do so, particularly in the set of, uh, setting of cavitary disease. Now, once we decide to treat, we do have this option 
uh, whether we're going to go with a three times a week or daily regimen. And the guidelines we said for cavitary disease use daily. For um, non-cavitary nodular bronchiectatic disease, we said you should consider three times weekly. You know, there's never been a randomized trial that has compared daily versus three times a week. So this is based mainly on cohort information, cohort data showing that people who with non-cavitary disease who got three times a week therapy had very high treatment success rate. And on the flip side, those who had cavitary disease usually have very low culture conversion with intermittent therapy. Hence, we recommend daily. Now, we would also recommend daily and refractory disease, and we'll talk more about that probably later. Okay. When a patient comes to you uh, and you make a decision based on symptoms, uh, give us some sense of what you would uh, see in, in the way of symptoms that would sort of flip you over and to say, this patient needs to be treated. Well, so the two most common symptoms in every survey have been cough and fatigue. Um, and so severity of cough would certainly be one thing um, that would push me to treat to see if I can improve their cough. Uh, fatigue, fatigue's a little tougher because a lot of times people have underlying illnesses that also cause fatigue and it doesn't always get better with treatment. Cough usually does. Um, weight loss, weight loss gets my attention. When people are losing weight, this is a serious illness. And we know that when people get very low body mass index, they don't respond to treatment very well. So we're very focused on nutrition in our patients. Those who have low body mass index will always see a nutritionist and uh, they will help us hopefully get some weight back on that patient. But again, that's a sign that's gonna push me to treat. And then quality of life. Some people, I mean, they've just retreated into their own world. They don't go out of the house anymore. They stay home. They're embarrassed by their cough. And, and that's another, this is a person, if their quality of life is poor, uh, I think that would push me to consider treatment as well. Mm -hmm. uh what advice do you give the patients ahead of time before you start treatment in terms of what to expect? Uh, what's this going to do to me other than get me better in terms of my uh, NTM? Yeah, I think this is a very important discussion. Uh, a lot of times when we see patients as a referral center, they come unhappy. Uh, and, and, and when we really delve into it, it's because they never got realistic expectations. Mm -hmm. you know, they, they, it wasn't really what to expect. So for example, they have bilateral cavitary disease or body mass index is 17. Using the word cure with that person is probably inappropriate. Yeah, and, yeah. and when you tell them you're going to cure them and you don't come close, they're not happy. So we think realistic expectations is what we need to uh, discuss. And so for some patients, it is cure. For example, Kansasii, Mycobacterium Kansasii, we cure all of those patients. So yes, that's a great infection to have. And, and we use the cure <laughs> word. Those who have obsessives, we don't use the word cure. We use the word control. Let's get control. And once we get control, maybe we can get cure. So these are the discussions, setting realistic expectations at the beginning, uh, I think helps. Number one, I think it helps with adherence to the regimen. People have a better idea what it is they're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. What about anticipating side effects? So what do you tell patients and how do you control some of the intolerance or truly uh, uh, bad outcomes from the, from the drug itself? Well, unfortunately, these treatment regimens have a bad reputation and it's very common to hear patients quote their physician, uh, the treatment is worse than the disease. Mm. 
Now, I can say, having treated these patients now for 30 years, that is not true for most patients, but it is for some. And many of the patients referred to National Jewish are, in fact, referred here because they had drug intolerances. And probably most of them go out on the same drug. Uh, we look at their dosing. When, they, when they're taking it, we might do a slow ramp up to get them to the uh, target dose. So there are some tricks of the trade, I think, to try to help people uh, tolerate their medication. But again, realistic expectations. You got to tell them yeah. side effects are common. We review the side effects. We provide both oral and written uh, information for the patient. And then you have to have some way that the patient can reach you when something happens. And also empower the patient, particularly with visual changes or hearing changes, to stop the medicine and then contact you, not wait to see you the next time. But just be honest, you know, the, these things do come with side effects, but most people we get through the course. Typical regimen for three times a week or daily would be what? The starting regimen. Yeah, so the current recommendations are a three-drug macrolide-based regimen, uh, azithromycin preferred over clarithromycin, and we specifically address that in a PICO question. Um, and then the next most important drug is ethambutol because it protects the macrolide. Uh, and then rifampin, we're not even sure right now what it does. And that has led to a, a large uh, randomized trial in the U.S. comparing two drugs versus three, azithromycin and ethambutol versus the azithromycin, ethambutol, and rifampin. Um, so what we should know in a, in a couple of years, whether we do need a three-drug regimen. And it may be that in some people we don't. You know, maybe those with milder disease, for example, maybe we don't need it. But for now, three-drug macrolide-based regimen. I understand that that may not be enough for some. What about parenteral medications? When do you consider it? What do you consider? And also, I guess, while we're talking about them, you better talk about the side effects and the potential, uh, yeah. potential adverse events. So we do. We, we do use uh, parenteral aminoglycosides. Most in the U.S. now use amikacin. Some may still be using streptomycin. In some countries, streptomycin is no longer available. Um, so when would you do that? Uh, we suggest that it be used in those who have cavitary disease, otherwise extensive disease, and in macrolide-resistant disease. Uh, there are data supporting better outcomes in those settings. Um, now, it does come with a potential price, and that is the toxicity of the class of aminoglycosides. That's vestibular toxicity, ototoxicity, nephrotoxicity. So in cavitary disease, I said we give daily therapy but we do recommend intermittent or three times a week therapy of the aminoglycoside if you add that component. Uh, and uh, we usually do it Monday, Wednesday, Friday, but there are some patients we might even do Tuesday, Thursday. We follow levels just like you would with any patient you're dosing with an aminoglycoside uh, to try to uh, avoid uh, unnecessary toxicity. And we usually recommend two to three months. Now in that two to three months, giving it three times a week, most people, we can get through that. But there are some who may develop side effects. So monitoring with audiograms, assessment uh, for the development of tinnitus um, uh, is a very important part of this. Now, I understand there is also a new kid on the block, inhaled medication for NTM. Yeah. Could you discuss what it is, how it's given? Uh, and I assume that toxicities would be <clears throat> much less than uh, parenteral. 
Yeah, you know, we've been given inhaled amicacin for decades, but it was just the parenteral form and mix it with some saline and inhale it. <laughs> uh, no, no efficacy studies to this date. It was only given in people who had treatment refractory, often very treatment refractory disease, mm -hmm. and it wasn't that well tolerated. Uh, so how do you make a drug well tolerated? You just keep reducing the dose. So that's what happened. People just got down to very low doses. Don't know if it worked, but it was better tolerated. So then the idea comes, well, you know, it does make sense that if you can deliver the medication to the site of infection, it ought to work pretty well. And you avoid the systemic circul circulation and therefore avoid toxicity. So that's what happened. Um, uh, amicacin liposome inhalation suspension, or let's say ALICE for short, um, was studied. And now it was studied in a phase two and a phase three study of, and this is important, treatment refractory patients, those who had been culture positive for at least six months, but actually it was years. The people who got into the trial, most of them had been on treatment for years, so very difficult to treat. Um, but what we learned from both trials, they were very consistent those who received uh, ALICE plus guideline-based therapy, they converted within, uh, in the phase three trial within six months, about 30%. And those that you didn't give ALICE and they just continued on the same thing, it was around 9%. So hugely statistically significant, but also very clinically significant. And now we, we know when people call and say, my patient's still culture positive at six months, what do I do? You say, well, don't keep doing the same thing because in 12 months, they're still gonna be culture positive. And so that's why we reviewed all the data as well as the FDA did. And this is the only FDA approved drug for the treatment of MAC on earth, that is ALICE. And it's probably the only novel recommendation in the 2020 guidelines, which was to define treatment refractory and now have a recommendation for how to intervene. Mm -hmm. Well, this uh, obviously we follow guidelines and we follow what the FDA says. On the other hand, as you're describing this uh, inhaled medication, I'm saying to myself, wow, I've had so many patients with, with, who just don't tolerate that, the, the initial yeah. therapy. Uh, yeah. Do you anticipate that this may be an adjunct to some of the uh, even earlier uh, forms of the disease? Yeah, and, and so this is using it off-label, right? Yeah, like as course, a substitution yeah. maybe for a drug that's not tolerated. And yeah, we, we do this a lot actually. Uh, yeah. So we do sometimes begin it uh, at the beginning and people who are treatment intolerant uh, may acquire some resistance. Uh, it's a good drug. It's an active drug. And, and the other thing I didn't mention before, I mean, it's a safe, safe drug. There are things that will occur. For example, talking about realistic expectations. When we start Alice, we say 50-50 chance you're going to become hoarse. Mm -hmm. uh, you may lose your voice. When that happens, we stop it for one to two weeks, we reintroduce it. And I'd say probably in 75% of patients, they can now tolerate it. I don't understand how that happens, but it does. A cough in about a third of people, some, some have some reactive airways, pre-dose with a bronchodilator, cough gets better. Some get shorter breath. Uh, and I haven't seen very much shortness of breath, but again, I, I will address him, usually give him a bronchodilator, see if that improves. And if it doesn't, then I think it is time to look for what could be a hypersensitivity pneumonitis reaction, rare, but it has been reported basically with all inhaled agents. Uh, so something that is something to consider. But yes, we are using off-label. And I guess I just end that this answer by 
there are two trials that are ongoing now that are now looking, randomized trials, that are now looking at treatment-naive patients and whether or not Alice is a benefit. Excellent. I was going to ask that question next, and you, uh, yeah. you answered yeah. for me. I understand uh, you may want to describe the, uh, the uh, nebulizer uh, um, mechanism that has been used specifically for this, for the, for this agent, for the ALICE? Yeah, so the, the, it comes bundled with its own nebulizer, which is basically what people know as the E-flow. Uh, and it's a very nice machine. It's very small, it's very quiet, it's very powerful, yeah. uh, delivers the dose quickly. Um, the, and and uh, like all of these nebulizers, what, one part, this is realistic expectations. You gotta let the patient know, not only is the time in inhaling it, but you gotta clean it. And so, uh, you know, there are very specific instructions given to the patient on how to clean the device so that it, is, so that it does not act as a nidus for further infection. Um, and because a lot of people say, can I just use my regular nebulizer with this? And the answer is no, it comes with its own nebulizer. Exactly. Uh, lastly, uh, let, let's talk a little bit about something that you had mentioned earlier, uh, clearance. Uh, how important is it uh, to, to do these clearance uh, uh, procedures for the patients? What is it doing? Uh, and what would you advise to a patient, uh, either with bronchiectasis, for example, one of the uh, risk factors, or uh, those who do not have produce a lot of sputum? Yeah, again, the same old saw. We're, we're really missing a lot of good evidence here uh, regarding airway clearance, uh, all forms of airway clearance. So I think experiential, uh, experientially, those of us who work with bronchiectasis patients see very clear benefits very quickly with introduction, and it's mainly in cough. Cough improves. And there was a study pu published out of NYU. They had 77 patients who had MAC disease, pulmonary disease, and did not get started on antimicrobials. They went into the watchful waiting. And it turns out half of those started chest physiotherapy, various types. Mm -hmm. And they followed them for up to two years. And at six, nine, 12, and 24 months, those who were doing chest physiotherapy had significant decrease in cough compared to those who didn't. And that's my clinical experience. When people come, they spend a week or two in Denver on our service. First thing we do day one is start airway clearance. Within a week, two weeks, most people's cough is better. We haven't even thought about treating them yet with antimicrobials. So I think it's an important adjunct, uh, whether you do watchful waiting or initiate therapy, I would start anyone with bronchiectasis on airway clearance. Mm -hmm. uh, do you use any uh, nebulized uh, uh, hypertonic saline in these patients? Yeah, we, we do. Um, our, we typically begin, uh, you know, an oscillating PEP valve, and we pair that with. Uh, we start with seven percent hypertonic saline. If not tolerated, we'll drop to three. Mm -hmm. Most people tolerate seven. Even people that you might guess would not, but most do. And, and we just find it's a very good intervention for airway clearance. The other thing it does, we get really good sputum specimens. <laughs> so we, you know, when the patients here, they see respiratory therapy, they get an induced specimen. And we just tell them, when you send us one in three, two or three months, whenever we want to get another, you just recreate what we did here. And we get very good specimens. And we published a couple of years ago, uh, the specimens that are sent to us before the patient arrives, the culture equals the three specimens we induce here. So we're getting good specimens from our patients. Great advice. With that, I think our time is up. I thank you so much for a very enlightening discussion and a lot of great information for the clinician. And hopefully that'll 
be put out to the patients too. Yeah. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks for your participation. Thank you, Sydney.